as I mentioned in our prayer time, and I hope we found that rendition of the Lord's Prayer moving and reminding of its truth and of its relevance. But we have a situation, once again, where the health secretary, the present health secretary, has um, COVID. You may not be aware of that, but it was confirmed last night that he has COVID. The Prime Minister and other members of the Cabinet were in meetings with him on Friday, but they're not going to now um, quarantine because they're trying out some new thing where if you get daily tested and you're okay, then you can carry on with your work. And, and that might be of help to those who may be involved in working life and may be getting pinged quite regularly with your um, on your phone. Is anybody in that position here? No? No? Well, I don't have the app, so I wouldn't know whether I was getting pinged or not. But, um, but I believe many folk are being pinged and not being able to go to their work. Indeed, they reckon if the numbers keep rising of COVID cases, we could end up with a million people having to stay at home over these coming weeks, not because they're ill, but because they've been in contact with somebody who has it, and the economy just simply won't be able to function. And so the story carries on. And if you did, and you were feeling inclined to listen to messages, not just from myself, but from other preachers of God's Word, but if you wanted to listen to messages 15, 16 months ago, you may remember that I did warn us that this wasn't going to just disappear, despite what then, at that point, some health leaders were telling us that we'll manage it, we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out, it'll be fine. It isn't, and it's not going to go away very quickly. But we thank God that with the vaccine, we at least can function, and we thank God for that. But nonetheless, a virus mutates. There is now, if you were planning, not any of us, I don't think, but I do feel for people down south, some of whom were in France and were on holiday, but they're told now that when they come back, even though they're vaccinated and everything else, they're going to have to quarantine because there's yet another version. It's from South Africa. It's what's called Beta, I think, this time. They're being very correct. They're calling everything by Greek names now. But it's from South Africa, and according to what scientists are saying, it has developed, they're very clever things, viruses, a ways of getting around the vaccine. And so the vaccines are not so effective. So France, seemingly, there's a number of cases of that now going about, and they're concerned they'll bring that into the country. Perhaps they've been a wee bit more concerned about that year past in March. Things might have been a wee bit different, but never mind. We learn, don't we, by our mistakes. But it's a warning to us that viruses don't just go away. The flu virus, obviously, is, is an example that we are all aware of. That it spreads and that actually is common to humanity. It's just that we've learnt ways, our bodies have learnt ways of dealing with it and responding to them that have ensured or allow us to carry on and to survive. And obviously vaccines help all of that. But nonetheless, viruses are there. And that actually is a good pointer to what Paul, in this letter, is trying to remind the church in Rome all about. We're about... Just imagine, you're believers in ancient Rome. Some of us, we had a couple of times we visited Rome in the past, Elizabeth and I with the boys. And you see that city, but see even the ruins are impressive. Imagine what it must have been like to live in Rome. There was the great buildings, the public buildings of the empire. An empire that was the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Until, of course, the British Empire and other things came along. It was massive. It was solid. Rome ruled over the known world. Its rule, its reign, its power was known in all the populated parts of the Mediterranean. It reached even up here to the wastelands of Pictish Scotland 
and it reached right down into the Middle East, to Spain and to Turkey. And if you were a believer and convinced that Jesus Christ was Lord, and increasingly it was going to become very dangerous for you to say that, not just in Rome, but in the Roman world, if you were convinced of that, and that was your belief that, as Paul says here, by his resurrection from the dead, the Son of God has appointed his Son as Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 4, if you were convinced of that, nonetheless you'd be faced with things that would suggest that that couldn't possibly be taken seriously. And yet even at this stage when this letter was written, probably in the late AD 50s, even then there were the things within Rome and Roman rule that would eventually 300 years and more down the line lead to destruction. Why? Because the virus of human sin, of greed, of lust, of jealousy, of the abuse and the misuse of power, of inequality, of injustice, of all of that, all of that was there. And beneath the surface, beneath the appearance of solidity and security and authority and things being established and everything else, there were those fracture points that were even already leading to problems within the empire and within the governments of the empire. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 3, that well-known verse, there is no difference, he writes, between Jew and Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. No one is righteous, no, not one. Sin, the virus of sin, is common throughout humanity, however much the outward appearances may suggest differently. And its consequences are fatal. Not necessarily or primarily physically fatal, although the wages of sin is death and we are fallen beings and therefore we die, and it's good for us sometimes to be reminded of that, but to lead to spiritual death. And that's why Paul's writing this letter. Indeed, that's why Paul wrote letters to all the different churches. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now, Paul, by all accounts, Paul at this point hadn't visited Rome. He does visit Rome at the end of the book of Acts, but he hadn't visited Rome. If you want to turn back to the book of Acts, just very briefly, we're going to set the scene for what we're going to think about over the next four weeks back to the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And we read that on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God, Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit of God came upon the believers gathered in the upper room. And we read in verse 4 that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it tells us this. 
There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And so from the very beginning, there were Roman God-fearing people there on the day of Pentecost. We have a gospel that's for all the nations, a God who's concerned for the global world. That's why it's right that we spend time to pray for our world. God who can and does communicate with people from a whole host of different cultural backgrounds, including Afghanistan and all the different places of the world, so radically different from our own, and yet God speaks into the nations. He declares his nations, and that shouldn't surprise us because the promise given to Abraham was that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And when the Bible talks about nations, it's not talking about geographical units. It's talking about all the different peoples of the world. That's why in the book of Revelation, that crowd of people, that number without number, have people with every language grouping, every tribal grouping, every racial grouping. And they are all calling upon the same God who has revealed his mercy in Jesus Christ. That global God and that global mission. And God had brought together people from Rome there. And it would appear that God had already been at work preparing people. If you want to move on to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. It's quite warm, isn't it? And we read in Acts chapter 18, after this, Paul left Athens, the beginning of chapter 18, went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, who recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here is the God who is that big picture. Now, we're not told how Aquila and Priscilla became believers. They obviously were believers. You can read on the story. They provided a home base for Paul in his ministry in Corinth. We are told, and therefore we can date this, AD 49, AD 49, Claudius pushed out all the Jews, including Jewish believers, Messianic believers. And Priscilla and Aquila were part of that. God had been at work. Didn't actually need the apostle Paul to found the church in Rome and God can do it. And a good reminder that ultimately it's him who calls us and brings us to himself. But he had already been at work preparing the ground. And then through what seemed to be a disaster in many ways, people having to leave their home city and go away to other parts of the world, God was at work and sent this Roman couple from Rome to Corinth. And let's be honest, that wasn't just a wee hop, skip and a jump. That was quite a journey. And they were leaving the advantages of a Roman city, and they were going to Corinth, which was part of the Roman Empire in Greece, but nonetheless was also a pretty godless and terrible place, as I'm sure many of us know. But God was in charge. And that obviously, that connection with Priscilla and Aquila, and perhaps hearing about what had happened in Rome and how the church had been founded. If you want to flick on to chapter 19, and Paul's in Ephesus by now. 
And we read in verse 21 of chapter 19 that Paul decides to go to Jerusalem. Passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And he says, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. That's stirring in his heart for the city, the heart of the empire. Interesting, Paul's going to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish, Jewish faith, the center of religion in many ways. But he's also going to Rome, the center of human power. We have a God who speaks into the center of power speaks to those who are in power and who challenges those in power. And Paul's heart was to go to that source. And then let's move on. 22, chapter 22 and verse 25. Paul's in Jerusalem. And he is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And there's all sorts of problems. Indeed, he's already made reference. End of chapter 21, Paul introduces himself. I am a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. He doesn't say too much about it, but later on, when he's about to be flogged, chapter 22 and verse 25, the centurion's about to flog him and interrogate him in order to find out why people were shouting at this. And as he stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, what are you going to do? He said, this man is a Roman citizen. And the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answers. Then the commander said, well, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But, Paul says, I was born a citizen. And those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Again, God is at work. These connections, these relationships, these opportunities. And that's confirmed when that following night, verse 11 of chapter 23 we read that the Lord himself comes near Paul, verse 11 of chapter 23, and says, Take courage, as you have testified me about in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And last but not least, if you want, just to flick to the very end of the book of Acts, where do we find Paul? We find him in Rome. And we're told that when he arrives off the boat after his journey, after three months at sea, the verse 12, they put into Syracuse, and then they set sail and arrive at Regium. And the next day, the south wind comes up, and they reach, I don't know how you pronounce that word, Petulio. I should really get Elizabeth to do this. She's better at the Italian than I am. And there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. At the very end of the book of Acts, we're told in verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house in Rome and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without all hindrance. And so that's the background of Paul's passion for Rome. Paul's passion for that city. Paul's desire to bring God's word to bear into the centers of power. And before we go any further on looking at anything else in this letter, we need to remind ourselves of that. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time, this opening chapter, Paul challenges the spirit of the age. 
He challenges the philosophy that's behind people's thinking and way of acting. I have to say, and I have to take my share of blame as much as anyone else over these last, well, I don't know how long, we have so personalized the gospel. We see everything through the Me Too agenda. And as evangelicals, we have to put up our hand and say, yes, we have. We have pandered to the spirit of the age rather than challenging the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age would say, I'm the king of the I'm the most important person. God's got to fit into my agenda. And the gospel has to be presented in a way that suits me. But interesting enough, as we'll see in a few minutes, the gospel that Paul proclaims here actually doesn't mention you and me at all. It declares the glory of God and of what he has revealed in Jesus Christ. And it speaks that into the very heart of the spirit of the age. And the church has failed to do that in Britain over these last 16 months. We've wrung our hands. We've told people to be nice. Yes, we rightly have exhorted people perhaps to take the vaccine and do all the things we're supposed to do. And that's not wrong. But so often the church has failed to challenge the spirit of those who are in power. This God of this world. And we've so personalized the gospel that quite rightly people say, well, you might need that. But I don't. That's your thing. But it's not mine. And so therefore, you know. But actually, the man who's writing it is passionate about who, what this gospel is about. Let's look on. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Romans 1 and verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was descended of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's Paul writing to the church. Here's Paul giving his credentials as to who he is and why the church should listen to him. Here is Paul giving his basic resume as to what he's about. Yes, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And I could spend much time. Did I have a section of my notes all about that? But time is going, so we'll leave that and probably touch upon that next week. But what he does do here is he explains what the gospel is. Notice what he says. The gospel is that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his death life was the son of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is about God. And it's about what God has said. And it's about what God has done and how that has been declared, and how that evidence has been given, and that evidence has been proved trustworthy in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not too much mentioned there about me or you. And it's this gospel that looks and speaks of the promises given through the prophets in the Old Testament, and I don't need to say to you good folks, because many times, in many ways, we have gone through, you know, that before. Perhaps it's time for me to bring my curtains out once again, just to remind you of the different colors through the Old Testament and how they are fulfilled in the New Testament. Perhaps we need to do that once we can start wondering about a wee bit more, a wee bit more easy-ozy. But nonetheless, 
this book testifies to God's faithfulness to his promises, to the birth of Jesus, and the whole story leading up to that, to the life and ministry of Jesus. And in particular, Paul says here about who through the spirit of wholeness was appointed the Son of God. He's thinking about his birth and the voice that comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's thinking about the transfiguration of Jesus. When Peter and John and James have that vision of the Lord transfigured in glory, where Elijah and Moses are attending to him, the prophets and the law ascribing and recognizing him, Jesus, for who he is. And again, that voice from heaven. And he's thinking, of course, supremely about the resurrection from the dead. And just in case we think, well, that's Paul... And that's his bent in the gospel. And there are theologians who would try to push that. Then let me just refer you to other parts of the Bible. To Peter, for instance. And there were times, let's be honest, Paul and Peter didn't always get on. I think that would be fair to say. What's you in the church? People didn't always get on. Paul and Peter didn't always get on. There's different personalities. That happens. But they were united in the gospel. Peter, First Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us you birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And then just one other brief reference from Peter, Second Peter. And verse 16 of chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and power, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, particularly thinking of the transfiguration. And then he goes on to speak about the prophetic message as something completely reliable. You maybe want to read on about that later on in your own thoughts and devotions. And then if you say, well, that's Paul, that's Peter. Well, what about John? John, first letter of John, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning. And he's there very much tying his letter to his gospel and the gospel to the book of Genesis and the opening of the book of Genesis. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands are touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. 
And then in chapter 2, he says in verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there are committees, of course, that spend hours on that. All I'm saying is there is the evidence. Interesting enough, three witnesses under Roman rule, that was it. That was it. And here are three witnesses. Obviously, there are many more. Here is Paul. Here is Peter. Here is John. And yes, they're different. And yes, they express things in their own particular style. That's right. They're coming to things from their own, in a sense, angle, their own experience. But what are they testifying to? They're testifying to what Paul says at the beginning of Romans. They're testifying to Jesus Christ. And my friends, that is the gospel. Yes, from this gospel flows the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, from this gospel flows the healing of the nations. Yes, from this gospel flows that peace of God which passes all human understanding. There are great and many, many, countless blessings that flow from the gospel. But it's not the blessings we are to preach, nor is the blessings that we are to seek after. It's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is all in all. And to know him and his righteousness is to know God. And that challenges the church today. It's a healthy antidote as it was in Roman times. You know, a very sensual society. We don't need to perhaps be reminded of that. Dear, my preaching is waiting for upsetting them. So sorry about that, wrong brother. But perhaps we should be weeping. Perhaps we should be weeping that the church has failed to deliver the gospel in the power of God and in the God-anointed and blazing way. That we have pandered to the spirit of the age. That we have altered and sometimes fundamentally and fatally altered what the gospel is about. And in this Me Too generation, this spirit of woke that is so apparent, especially amongst a younger generation, that has to be challenged, as we shall see in a few weeks' time. Because the gospel is about God and about who he is. He's rushing to get the door. Don't worry, your turn will come soon. But as we close, it's a gospel that calls us to respond. I remember just a wee illustration as a boy. It's funny how some things stick in your mind. I was brought up in the Cairns scheme in the halfway. Have you traveled very far, have we? Yes. Paul traveled all through, the, well, most of the known world. I haven't gone very far from over and halfway in campus line. Fellows was when we moved to Thornley Bank. That was about seven miles away. You know, far flung. But I remember the two doors up. And bless them. They were, even at that age, I'd worked out they were a Roman Catholic family because even in the 1960s, they still went about with the Celtic top on. And the window would open. And his mum, they were a, quite a kind of rough family. I think even as a young boy, I, I could, you know, I, I, I knew that. And he went to a different school. He went to St. Caddox, which was across the road, and not to Cairns Primary, which was around the corner. 
and the window upstairs would open and we'd be playing across in waste ground eventually became a playing field for St Caddocks but it was waste ground back in the 1960s and this lady now bless her that was probably a posh way to describe this wifey opened the door she had about 10 kids or something you know she had a big family and she would shout it and I can't really do it I'm not posh but I'm not as Lanarkshire as this, she would open the window and say, Oh, Christopher, your dinner's ready. And Christopher, who would be playing with us, you, that when his mum opened that window and shouted out, was he to carry on playing? Was he to turn the deaf ear? Well, maybe he had at one time, but even as a boy of, what, seven, six, seven, and eight, he realized that when she opened that window and she shouted at her, Oh, Christopher, your tea's ready. That meant only one thing. Whatever he was doing, he was to drop, he was to leave, and he was to go home. Or else he would get a scalp. I know you're not meant to do that nowadays, but back in the 60s, you could. Well, the call of God by name is like that. The very door of heaven is open. And God by his spirit speaks. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the sovereign God calls us by name. And whether we're Christopher or Max or Sutherland or whoever we are, God sovereignly calls us by name. And when we hear that call, we are to respond. Looking just as we close at those verses, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Verse 6, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. This is the God who calls people. And it's a work of a sovereign grace. It's brought to us not by a phone or by a wifey shouting out the window or by an email, but by the function and unction of the Holy Spirit who speaks into our lives and who calls us just as surely as Peter, as Jesus called Peter and James and John to leave behind their nets and everything else and to follow him. So he calls us to follow him. Paul knew what that meant. All I once held dear, I had it all, Paul says. I was a scholar. I was respected in the Jewish church. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I knew all these languages. I was a Roman citizen. I had my passport ready to travel the world. And God called me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And we're called, we're told, to the obedience that comes from faith. This is the God who calls, calls people from Afghanistan. Remember the story there, true story? of how he had a vision of Jesus and of how that Muslim Muslim friend had his eyes opened that the prophet Jesus was actually the one that he should follow and give all allegiance to. How we need to pray, not just for people like that, but people in our own society today that amidst all the noise and the clamor and the frustrations and the fears, people would hear the call of God to come and to follow him. And how we need to hear that call in our own lives. Can I close by saying how much I've appreciated you good folks sitting here. And your faithfulness as you've heard. Not the call of the minister to come to church. But the call of the Spirit of God 
to gather for worship and to hear his word. Oh, how heaven would open again in our society and the Spirit of God would so move that countless numbers would hear that call. I told you before, uh, I used to have this dream that we'd have to return to the pulpit because the church was full of people. Not because we were socially distanced and having to cover the place up, but perhaps it's sort of foretaste of what is to come. Thank you, Session Clark. Your smile there encouraged me because he, like me, belongs for that day. Do you know what, brother? Ancestor. But that will come as the promise is fulfilled when Jesus said, When I, when I am lifted up, when Jesus is lifted up, I will draw men and women to myself. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Who says that the opening letter, opening words of an email or a letter are that important? They're fundamental to understanding Paul. They're also fundamental in understanding the gospel.